Well, good morning. Uh, Welcome to Manhattan Presbyterian Church. Uh, You may have noticed that we'll be taking a brief break from the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to step back into the book of Jonah. Uh, We'll be hearing from the third chapter of Jonah, so you can start heading that way. We're going to be looking at all ten verses today. And if you can recall, I preached Jonah 1 and 2 over the past year, which means it's been a a little bit since we've heard from it. Um, So a a brief recap is in order. I'll, I'll keep it short. Kind of like Rodney would do if he was to give a recap of the Alabama-Auburn game from yesterday. So it'll be short here. But Jonah is a small book in the Old Testament. It's four brief chapters. And it chronicles the story of a prophet who's running from the presence of God. Right, Jonah, he's a prophet during the time of King Jeroboam II. You can find that information in Kings 14. Verses 23 through 28. And if you were to read that, what you would see there in in Second Kings is that the king that Jonah was under didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was an evil king. And yet the, the text there specifically says that the Lord refused to blot Israel from the face of the earth. So you have Jonah, a prophet during a time in Israel's history when they're not seeking to obey God. And he's been called to go share the good news, right? To, to call Nineveh to repentance. And so you have Jonah, this prophet, who's experienced God's grace, not wanting to extend grace to others. Those terrible Ninevites, these people who are so evil that their evil had wafted up to God. And so in chapter one, Jonah flees from God's presence. The, the text consistently describes Jonah going down. He goes down to Tarshish. He goes down to the port. He goes down into the boat. And eventually the Lord says, nah, this isn't happening. So he throws a huge storm on the sea. And, and Jonah's seat is just stuck here. And eventually the sailors, they wise up. They, they draw lots. They figure out it's Jonah who brought this storm on them. And they throw Jonah overboard. And he goes down again into the, the belly of this fish. And he sits there for three days before he finally prays. And he calls out to God. And it's there that the Lord hears his prayer. And for the first time, you see Jonah come up in the narrative. He's actually, as Brian so eloquently put it last week, we see this puke scene and the the fish throws him up on land. And that's where we're going to pick up today in Jonah 3. Jonah has just been vomited back onto the ground and he hears from God again. And so if you have your Bible, Jonah 3, uh, we're going to read the first five verses, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'll begin to teach this passage. So it says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is the word of the Lord, and the grass withers and the flower fades. 
Pray with me. Triune God, creator of the cosmos, we come before you this Sunday morning asking for you to minister to us through your word, specifically in in and through these 10 verses in Jonah. We praise you for your presence and for you making a way for us to experience your presence with joy. Please make us a people who will respond to your word in ways that are in step with the gospel of your son, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, please open the eyes of our hearts so that we may know the riches of your word and delight in that obedience with joy. Amen. What do Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison, Michael Jordan, Dr. Seuss, and Vincent Van Gogh have in common? They all needed second chances with respect to their vocation in life. Einstein did not speak until he was four and did not read until he was seven, causing his teachers and parents to think he was mentally handicapped. Eventually, he was expelled from school. He went on to win the Nobel Prize and changed the face of modern physics. Edison's teachers told Edison he was too stupid to learn anything. Work was no better as he was fired from his first two jobs for not being productive enough. And even as an inventor, it took him over a thousand times to invent the light bulb. Jordan was famously cut from his high school basketball basketball team before eventually going on to win multiple championships with the Chicago Bulls. And Dr. Seuss, the the well-loved children's author, who has published a myriad of books, Ask My Daughter. Well, his first book, To Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street, was rejected by 27 different publishers before someone would take it. And Vincent Van Gogh, he sold only one painting in his entire life. And it was to a friend for a very small amount. Now, today, his paintings are valued in the millions. If you're like me, you find these stories to be fascinating. I mean, we we all love these second chance stories. We we love the redemption story, the, the underdog story, right? It's hardwired into our beings. We long for it. I mean, just what breaks your heart more, watching the the freshman high school football player lose the state championship or the the senior high school football player lose the state championship? It's the senior. He no longer has a second chance. There's, There's no shot for redemption for him. And if you're sitting in the pews this morning, the chances are you are in need of a second chance that there's somewhere in your life where you need redemption. The opportunity for things to end the way that they're supposed to end. Perhaps it's in that friendship or perhaps it's in parenting. Maybe it's a, a struggle past or present with pornography. It could be the way you used a credit card when you were younger or a career choice that you've made. We all need second chances. And if we're really honest, there's places in our life where we need a 200th second chance or a 2,000th second chance. And I have good news. Right? The, the Bible speaks to this. A, a second chance is exactly where we pick up the story of Jonah today. 
in verse 1, right? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Right? If you were to go back and read Jonah 1, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, you'd see almost the exact same call. And here's God calling Jonah a second time and commissioning Jonah to go to Nineveh a second time. Right? This is God reestablishing Jonah. He's redeeming him. And so you got to kind of ask why. Like, why would God give Jonah a second chance? Like, why not leave him to die in the belly of a fish? And even more so than that, right? Why does he give him a second chance and then give him such a meaningful role? He reestablishes him into the role of prophet for Israel. He gives him a meaningful calling here, right? God had every right to just let Jonah die, but he doesn't. He restores him. He redeems him. He gives him this second chance. And what we see here is, is a microcosm, right, of, of the purpose of God's word. That's the first thing you got to see here is that this is what God's word is about, right? When, when God's word comes to Jonah, it comes with a purpose. And all through the scriptures, God has one purpose. It's glorifying himself through the redemption of a people for the praise and fame of his name. It's, it's glorifying himself through the redemption of a people, for the praise and fame of his name, right? Inherent in this notion of redemption is the second chance that we all long for. And the good news here is that we serve a God who's in the business of redemption, the business of second chances, right? We see it fleshed out here is in the rest of these, those short verses there, right? Pick it up in verse three. It says, so Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to, to the word of the Lord, right? Now, Nineveh is exceedingly great. It's three days journey. And Jonah begins to go into the city and he calls out. He calls out what God gave him to call out, his word. And we see the effects, the purpose of God's word going forth and that these people, they repent. And so notice there in your Bibles that the word Lord, it's all capital, that's because that's the covenant name of God. It's the name that God gave Moses. It's his personal name. And here we have the God of Israel sending the prophet to the foreigner, to the other, to the Ninevite. Don't miss this. You see God's ultimate purpose on display here. Here we are in the Old Testament. And we're seeing the missionary heart of God, right? God is redeeming worshipers from every nation, tribe, and tongue for his own glory. This is the ultimate purpose of God's word. God redeemed Jonah so that he could redeem the people of Nineveh through him. Did you catch that in verses four and five? Jonah goes, he proclaims what God gave him the poem, and God brings about redemption, a massive revival the whole city repents. They turn and they believe. Why? Because they heard the word of God. Right? This is the purpose of God's word. And if you're a Christian in here this morning, if you've been redeemed by God, then you've been called into this mission. 
That means that you, you have to respond to the call to worship God and evangelism. You've been called to the task of proclaiming the glory of God to your neighbors. So my wife, she, she earned a degree in the fashion, that it prepared her for the fashion industry. And there's a certain style of clothes that she likes. She has a very particular style. And when Leslie goes shopping, she just doesn't walk into a mall and just kind of like throw money and then like hold her hands out and wait for people to put bags in her hands. Like, that's not what she does. I wish that's how shopping worked, but it's not, right? She, she goes into what seems like every store, right? And, and she, she combs the racks and she's looking for a very particular article of clothing, right? This is her purpose. She's gonna find this particular article of clothing that fits into the overall flow of her wardrobe that she can wear for a specific outing, right? And that, right, that is what God is doing for us. He has redeemed us from the racks of the world. And he's fitting us for a very specific purpose. The redemption of the nations, for the the tasks of worship and evangelism. And so in the same way, if you've been redeemed by God, he's redeemed you for those purposes the dual tasks of worship and evangelism. This means you should be worshiping God and proclaiming the good news to your neighbors right here in Manhattan or on post or in your dormitories. Right? If you're a Christian and, and you're not worshiping God, if you're not making him known, that would kind of be like my wife wearing football pads around town. She would be clothed, right? But it wouldn't be the way it's supposed to be. Like, something's off, right? That, that's us when we're not worshiping God or sharing the gospel with our neighbors. And so if, you, if you're sitting in here and you're like, yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm the person who's wearing football pads around town. I, I don't know how to connect my eight to five work week with worship. I, I don't even know what it looks like to begin a spiritual conversation with my neighbor, like I'm, I'm stuck. I don't know how to do this. Then I just want you to know, right? I, we're, we're reading about Jonah this morning. Think about Jonah's story, right? You're clearly not alone. Worship and evangelism, they are often difficult things. But I want to remind you that God uses people like Jonah. Did God pursue Jonah? Yes. Did God redeem Jonah? Yes. Did God use Jonah for his purposes? Yes. God's purpose is much bigger than your sin and your frailty. It's much bigger than your fear or your inadequacies. God can and will use you as an agent of grace in your neighbor's life. How do I know that's possible? Well, because God using you doesn't ride on you. It's not riding on you. It's it's riding on the power of God's word. And 
That's what we see, right? Pick it up in verse six with me. Like it's, we see the power of God's word. The, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. How do I know that God can use you in your neighbor's life? Because here's God using a pagan Ninevite king to make himself known in an evil and wicked city. And he did it through a rebellious adolescent prophet who's, who's consistently ran from him. If God can use Jonah and if he can use a broken, evil Ninevite king to publish and proclaim his word, he can use you. That's not a stretch. It's, it's certainly possible. Right? Notice, notice the flow of this narrative. The first five verses, they, they chronicle kind of big picture, the power of God's word. It, it brings about this massive revival in Nineveh. And then it pivots in verse six, and it, it kind of zooms in on the king. It, it's, it's as if the narrator is saying, look, it's not an exaggeration. Literally, from the, from the greatest, the king, to the least, right, to the, to the livestock. God's word it's powerful, right? The, the king's so moved, he proclaims and publishes the proper response to it. He goes public with this. He calls the entire city to repentance, right? Verse seven is the proclaiming and publishing and verse eight is the call to repentance, right? Do you see that? Here's the, the pagan Ninevite in the Old Testament calling his city to repent, turn from their evil, and trust God. Right? This should not shock us. Right? If I'm honest, though, when I first read this, my first thought was, man, could that be possible in our day and age? But that's not the right response. Like my, my cynicism, my skepticism, that's not the right response. And I thought, why, why, why is this? And as I began to think, and it's Advent season, right? And if Jesus can come into our world, and if he can spend three days in the ground, and upon his resurrection, usher in a new creation, right? The, the renewal of the world, and that he can solidify our redemption, then him changing a city, that's small beans. That's nothing. Right? If you were to keep reading Jonah and you, you'd get to chapter 4, verse 11, you'd see that Jonah, that Nineveh, is about 120,000 people. It's about the size of Topeka. And, and Topeka, the Lord could bring about revival there. That's not beyond the power of God's word. We, we shouldn't doubt the power of God's word to change people's lives. The proper response to the purpose and power of God's word is to repent and trust God's word. 
Right? It's confessed that we are needy and powerless and to turn to God, just like the king of Nineveh, and then in turn publish and proclaim God's word to our neighbors as we worship him throughout our daily lives. We can take heart because the power of God's word is sufficient for all of that. It's not riding on us. God doesn't need clever evangelists. He doesn't need strategic pastors or workers in your field. He just doesn't need that. He's, He's just calling faithful people. We can take heart because God's word is sufficient for all of that. A little under two years ago, I was in a pretty bad car accident, and uh, my right arm was pretty torn up. I needed 13 screws and a steel plate to fix it. And I needed a lot of physical therapy, eight months of pretty intensive physical therapy. And I don't know how many of you have ever had to have extensive physical therapy, um, but it was one of the most physically painful things I've ever experienced in my life. And I say that after having 13 screws and steel plate put in my arm, uh, competing in collegiate wrestling, contracting malaria this summer in West Africa, like physical therapy, it's at the top of the list, right? Three days a week for eight months, my therapist would see me at 7 a.m. And it was a comical sight, right? I'd be the first client and I'd have this forlorn look on my face like, here I am again. I hate the smell of this place. I hate the royal blue tables. And I hate that my therapist is smiling at me every morning. And without fail, he would see me and he would say, good morning. And I'd have, it was almost like a responsive reading. I'd be like, it's morning. And he'd be like, Samuel, have I ever hurt you? And I would say, every time, bro. Like, every time. And I, I just didn't like that place. And so, but why did I keep going back? Like, why would I submit myself to that torture? Like, why would I go in week after week after week and sit myself to that table where he would try and rip my arm off? Like, why, why would I do this? There are three overarching reasons why I think anyone goes to physical therapy, but I saw them in myself as well. The first is that the people who go to physical therapy, they're broken people. My shoulder was not right. And I had dreams of one day like picking my little girls up, throwing them in the air and catching them. And I couldn't even hold my newborn at the time. She was five pounds and I was outside my weight restriction. People who who go to physical therapy, they need to be made well. Uh, The the second thing, the reason you go there is because, well, your physical therapist can actually make you well. Like, I didn't have the power to heal myself. I didn't have the power to change my shoulder. But my physical therapist did. So no, we're not enough to carry out the purpose of God's word, but God's word is the physical therapy that we need. It's the physical therapy we need for our soul and for It's the physical therapy that our our neighbors need, that our town needs, that Kansas at large needs, right? We're not enough to carry out the purposes of God. We're not enough to heal our own rebellion. You even see it in the king's response, right? Look at verse nine. 
What's he say? He says, who knows? Right? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Right? He, he knows they don't deserve redemption. They haven't done anything to deserve God's mercy and grace. And yet in the midst of this, in the midst of them not deserving, the word of God came powerfully and it changes an entire city from the greatest to the least. So let's trust God's word to make us into worshipers and to see our neighbors come to know Jesus. Even this week, I, I want to challenge you to ask a coworker or a friend, hey, sometime, sometime. I'd love to hear what you've experienced spiritually in your life. Would you be up for grabbing coffee and telling me about that? This week, ask a coworker that and go listen. Listen to them. See if the Lord will open a door for you to be able to share a piece of his word. I promise God's word in that moment will be powerful enough to sustain you. And it is, it is what your friend needs. You know, a moment ago, I said there were two overarching reasons people go to physical therapy, right? The, the first is that we need healing, right? The, the second is the, the therapist's ability to heal you. But there's also a third. It's the one thing, like, to know, right? It's, it's one thing to know that your physical therapist has the power to heal you. It's a whole other thing to actually trust them and to submit to the regimen that they prescribe, right? The, the, the third thing here is it's trust, right? That's the next critical step. Like you actually have to trust God's word to have its effect in your life, right? It, it highlights the dimension of God's word that we see in this passage, the third one. It's, we've seen the purpose of God's word. We've seen the power of God's word, but ultimately, right, we, we have to come to trust the person, of God's word, right? The very source of God's word, his character, right? Look at verse 10 with me, right? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it, right? Ultimately, the word of God is merely an extension of God's good and trustworthy character, why does God relent from destroying Nineveh? Because he's God. If we were to keep reading, we'd see Jonah's response to all of this in, in chapter four, verse two, right? Where you get to see this on full display. Just turn forward a page in your Bible. And I'm gonna read it here, two. Jonah says, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, right? We, we can trust the word of God because behind the purpose and power of God is a, is a good and trustworthy God. We can trust his character, right? See, you have to trust and marvel at the character of God. If, if you're a Christian in this room, you have to trust and marvel at the character of God. He is amazing. 
Right? It's, it's been said, right, that if you see a man with a knife, like picture it in your mind right now, a man holding a knife. Right? It's been said that if you see a man with a knife, it makes a really big difference if he's a thief or a surgeon. It, it makes a big difference if you're in an alleyway or in an, op- in an operating room. It makes a big difference if he's dressed in a white robe, right? Or if he's in all black with his face covered. And so I just want to ask you, when, when it comes to the task of worship and evangelism, right, do you see God as a thief or a surgeon? Do, do you see his purpose and his power and his plan for you as a good thing? Or is a bad thing, right? Is his purpose for you an alleyway or an operating room? Is he the good father that Brian described last week in Luke 11, who loves to give good gifts to his children, right? Do you trust him to use you in the lives of your neighbors? Like, do we trust him to see a work like what happened in Nineveh happen in our own city or on post? or our own campus, and and we should, we should. And I say that with the important qualifier that if you were to read this passage, you'll see that Jonah was never promised revival before he trusted God. He, He wasn't promised that the word would be received well, but he was promised God's presence. And That's where we see Jonah enter in and he proclaims a a simple message, right? Verse four, it's it's yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, right? The the word overthrown there is the same word used in Genesis 19.25, Lamentations 4.6 and Amos 4.11 describe what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're new to Christianity, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by God because of their evil action. It was a, a terrible judgment against those people one that should sober us as Christian. It's the judgment that's coming for everyone who's outside of Jesus and and one that we shouldn't wish on anyone. So especially as Christians, we should be about this, right? The Israelites of Jonah's day were waiting for a Messiah, a Messiah that would rescue the world from its impending judgment. And set the world right again. And as Christians, we know that the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, well, it was nothing compared to what Jesus experienced on the cross. Right? Judgment has already come into this world. And, and we want people to experience the judgment at the cross where they can experience grace. Not, not the final judgment apart from Christ. Right? As I've been preaching through this short book, I've, I've shown you twice in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus has taken the sign of Jonah on himself. And this time I want to show it to you again, because ultimately this passage, it, it climaxes thousands of years in the future when Jesus comes and, he, and the advent happens. And this time I, I just want you to look at Luke 11, 29 through 32. Maybe you'll remember what I say about it, since we can't remember if Brian preaches the same sermon twice in Luke, right? But these four verses here in Luke 11, 29 through 32. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It it seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. 
For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to hit this generation. The, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Right? The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is talking about himself. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Right? Jonah came and preached the word to the Ninevites, but Jesus was the word who became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Right? Jesus is the word to our present generation. Jonah came and preached a simple and clear word to the Ninevites. Repent or be overthrown. And our word today as Christians should be even more clear. It should be come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He's the purpose this world was created for. He has the power to heal and he is the person that you can trust. So what would it look like for us to say, come to Jesus, to our neighbors today, right here in Manhattan? I'll give us one, I'm going to give one application. It's a simple application, really. And then I'm going to begin to wrap things up. One thing we could do as a church to tell our neighbors to come to Jesus is be a church that plants more churches. To be a church planting church. We have to be willing to arise and go to the Ninevehs of our day. This means we need to trust the Lord to plant churches in, in places that don't have substantial gospel witness. We have to be willing to sacrifice and go to a people not like us to get to places like Hayes, Kansas, or Garden City, or Dodge City, places like Emporia, Topeka and Salina. We have to respond to the word of God to, to go and plant more churches where more people can hear the word of God. They can see the purpose of God. They can feel the power of God and they can come to know Jesus who is God. That is, that is something that we can do as a church. I'm curious, who here has seen the movie Dunkirk? Okay, a number of people. It's, it's a, if you haven't seen it, it's a powerful movie. It's a film about a rescue mission in World War II. It's an act of heroism from ordinary men. You have the Nazis, and they're about to crush this British port in France. And Winston Churchill issues orders for the British forces to evacuate as many troops as possible. And the hope is to get 45,000 men out. And after day one, only 7,669 men were able to be evacuated. And it's at this point that they realize that their efforts and their endeavors, it's not going to be enough. And so a call goes out to the entire British Isles. All available sailing vessels piloted by civilians were to assist. To that response, 933 Private vessels sailed to Dunkirk. Yachts, fishing boats, they all sail. And so by the end of the eight-day evacuation, 338,000 men were evacuated. 
If you were to visit the Imperial War Museum in London, there sits a small wooden fishing boat named uh, Tamzine. It's 14 feet, seven and a half inches long. It's not very big. It's, it's an open vessel. It was the smallest vessel to sail that day to Dunkirk. And if you were to look at it, it surely seems inadequate, not fit for the task. And yet men were saved that day from impending doom because this little boat was pushed into the waters. And, and that's, I think, what Jonah 3 calls to us. It's to push our little boats into the waters of Kansas and follow Jesus. Knowing his purpose should be our purpose and knowing that he's enough in the midst of this. So if I were to put this sermon in a sentence, it would be this. It's God's word is sufficient for everything we need to accomplish his purpose in this world because he's a trustworthy God. God's word is sufficient for everything we need to accomplish his purpose in this world because he's a trustworthy God. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with his son, Jesus. That's what we see here in Jonah 3. And may it be so in Riley County and in the city of Manhattan and in your place of work or the hall in which you study. But most of all, may it be true in us as a church and in our very lives. Pray with me. Father, would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, make us a congregation that proclaims the glory of your son, Jesus. Would you please make us a congregation that is submitted to your word, that delights in the purpose and power of your word as we proclaim the excellencies of that word, the excellencies of your son, Jesus. We do ask that you would raise up more church plants for the forgotten towns of Kansas and the cities as well. And we ask that you would help our church play our small part in that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.